This is Slippery People, the best Talking Heads podcast, not about Talking Heads. When you think of the words bass and Talking Heads, what comes to mind? Is it the iconic intro to Psycho Killer? The repetitive and hypnotic pulse of Once in a Lifetime. Or maybe even the fun and playful line that opens the track, Nothing But Flowers. These are the bass lines of the legendary Tina Weymouth. They're playful and engaging, with a simplicity that allows them to fit incredibly well in a variety of genres. Tina's bass lines are heavily inspired by the bass lines found in Motown and soul music, especially the lines of James Jamerson. Tina's lines often have this wonderful energy that allows them to work as melodies by themselves. Listen to Uh Oh, Love Comes to Town. But something you might not think of when it comes to bass and talking heads is slapping. A percussive way of playing the bass that involves hitting the strings with the side of your thumb. It gives the sound this great bite. Take a listen to Larry Graham, a slap pioneer who is often credited with the invention of the technique. Latina rarely ever uses slapping when playing with talking heads. That being said, listen to this awesome slap bass solo played during the live version of Houses in Motion. The solo is wild. It's flashy, fat, and funky. So you won't be surprised to know that it's not Tina on bass, but rather touring bassist Michael Busta Jones, who for this series, we'll simply call Busta. Busta was brought on tour with Talking Heads because they felt their studio sound would be impossible to replicate with just the four core members of the band. So starting in 1980 with the tour for the band's fourth album, Remain in Light, the live lineup would consist of at least nine musicians. That's approaching ska band sizes. This new band would generate a wall of sound night after night, slowly changing the band's sound from their art rock and new wave roots to something much more funky and groovy, heavily influencing the band's following album, Speaking in Tongues. The music is just funkadelic, danceable and interesting without ever taking itself too seriously, and none of it would be possible without the quintessential funk instrument, the bass. But to misquote David Byrne a little, how did we get here? Who was this bassist that showed the band how to funk alongside the other touring musicians? Who brought slapping bass to new wave art pop? Who was Busta Jones? Oh, yes, sir. Good to see you so full of Everybody want to buy Doug. Got Kennedy Baptist Hospital in War 24A. Just flat fix and bring you the hottest thing in the country. Real hot and flu. Coming to you through WHBQ in Memphis, Tennessee. And it's Friday night. Tomorrow's payday and birthday. To answer any of those questions, let's take a journey to when and where Busta was born. 1950s Memphis, Tennessee. Home of Elvis and the ancient Greeks. Busta was born on September 26, 1951, and from a young age, he was always attracted to music. By the time he was a teenager, Busta managed to get his hands on a guitar from a Memphis pawn shop. 
but Busta isn't going to become a world-renowned guitar player. Although he dabbled with the six-string throughout his life, Busta's most well-known performances would of course be on bass. Memphis was a hotbed of creativity. A blues revival was taking place on both sides of the Atlantic, with musicians like the Beatles, Rolling Stones, and John Maytall introducing the genre to the masses in the UK, and Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, and B.B. King all further popularizing the genre in the US. What was once considered an obscure folk music made by the black population of the Mississippi River Delta was now the backbone of a wildly creative well, new genre, rock and roll. A core component for this new sound was the attempt by white artists to play a genre that was primarily created by black artists. Though something new was being created, there was a clear structure based heavily on the traditionally black folk music of the U.S. Southeast, the blues. To quote the Muddy Waters song, the blues had a baby and they named it rock and roll. Although there was often the discussion of white artists stealing the music from black culture, the issue itself is much more complex, with every artist and musical scene having its own way of relating itself to the blues and the concept of race that inherently carried. In Memphis, some musicians had a deep respect for the bluesmen that came before them. In fact, much of the Memphis music scene was created by young white teenagers going and talking to the original bluesmen of the 30s and 40s, like Furry Lewis and Othar Turner. One of the earliest music recordings I could find for Busta's bass playing actually comes from two different songs he did with these older bluesmen. One with Johnny Woods performing the song Lonesome Feelin'. Another was Sleepy John Estes performing the song Broken Hungry. As a rock bassist from Memphis, Busta understood the importance of the blues, although he wouldn't stick around in the genre for long, feeling as though the songs were much more stripped back, and then an electric bass sound felt out of place on these tracks. These songs were recorded probably sometime in the late 60s or early 70s, but were never released until 2003 as part of Jim Dickinson Field Recordings, Delta Experimental, Volume 3. I guess that leads us to the obvious question. Who the heck is Jim Dickinson? For that... Okay, like for how, lo how long do you want the answer to be? <laughs> let's talk to somebody who has a much better handle on this than I do. My name is Robert Gordon, born and raised in Memphis, Tennessee. Got into the blues when I saw Furry Lewis opening for a Rolling Stones concert. Robert was a huge help on this project. His book, It Came From Memphis, is one of the few resources I could find that talked about Busta and his relationship to the Memphis scene during this time. So Robert, who is Jim Dickinson? Jim is a producer, piano player, guitarist. Jim was a lot of things. He was an incredibly important part of the music scene in Memphis during the late 60s and into the 70s. He was among many white youth in the city who began to further question the roots of the popular music they were hearing. What were the blues? Who played them? And how can we, young white Memphibians, reproduce it? Well, why not ask the bluesmen themselves? At this point, many of the originators of the genre were still alive and still living in Memphis or in the surrounding areas, albeit often in poverty and unknown to the general public. And as these young white guys got interested in folk music and in blues music, 
and realized that the blues artists were living in Memphis and could still play and wanted to play, these guys figured, hey, we just have to go pick them up across town and bring them here. The Memphis scene had a deep reverence to these older musicians and often looked to them for guidance when playing. But like I said, Busta didn't see the blues as a genre he needed to explore further, at least not on this instrument at this time. Instead, Busta would focus on the more energetic genre of electric blues, first getting involved with the left-handed Flying V guitarist, Albert King. Albert King was a key innovator of electric blues as a genre, warping it into something that took the traditional structure of blues and pushed it to its limits, adding in more and more electronic instruments alongside some flashy solos, especially on guitar. There's not a lot of information out there about Busta's time with King. What we do know is that Busta played bass in the touring band, likely never going into the studio with King. The backing bands for many artists like King were consistent, and there wasn't anybody keeping track of who was in the band at what time. But there's photographic evidence of Busta and King's band. Multiple interviewees for this project mentioned a picture they remember of Busta with Albert King. Apparently, Busta's wearing this colorful psychedelic outfit, and he's just a teenager, a young bass player who's just started to get the knack for music. According to one interviewee, Busta recalled his time with King like this. King took his blues real serious. He'd carry a 45 with him at all times, and if you were out of it, he'd let you know. So here he is, a now novice electric blues bass player who is looking to continue to explore this new genre. Although he understands the importance of the blues, he is more interested in the electronic innovators of the genre. In fact, Busta was more interested in the blues revival going on across the pond, especially attracted to groups like the Rolling Stones. So he goes out looking for a band that he feels represents the future of the genre he's interested in. He plays in various local bands, but nothing ever really gets recorded and released. That is, until Busta joins a band called Moloch. Named after one of the devil's servants from the Old Testament, Moloch's lineup included some key players in the Memphis blues revival scene, including guitarist Lee Baker, percussionist Jimmy Crosswaith, and singer Gene Wilkins, as well as other bassists like Joe Gaston and Larry Changes. Moloch's sound was rooted in electric blues, and Busta became attracted to them after seeing Wilkins on stage and feeling like the performance reminded him of Mick Jagger. And the Moloch sound was a real heavy, you know, it was sort of a heavy metal sound almost. This is historian Robert Gordon again. They were a, when they played live, they were an assault. Before Busta joined Moloch, the band had released their first album, a self-titled LP that was met with a scathing review by Rolling Stone, who called Moloch the ugliest rock around. Lead singer Gene Wilkins once joked that after the review, he never picked up a copy of Rolling Stone again. But despite this review, the album is still seen as a cult classic, with the song Going Down being covered by everyone from Jeff Beck. To Deep Purple. Go down slow. To Stevie Ray Vaughan. Nevertheless, the reviews left Moloch out in the cold, and the band ended up going through several lineup changes. During this time, the band, as well as a bunch of other hippies in Memphis, would live in this big group home owned by guitarist Lee Baker, sometimes dubbed the Moloch House, which was located in the primarily white neighborhood of Linden. There were plenty of people coming in and out of that house from all walks of life. 
sometimes just dropping in to say hi, and sometimes to sleep on the floor or in the closet. People came and went through the Moloch house, you know. The, 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 the door was open, some people slept in closets, some people slept on the sofas, some people had their own rooms. I think everyone lived in the Moloch house for a minute or two. Buster grew up north of Jackson Avenue in Memphis, a historically black part of the city. So it made sense that when he was over playing with all these white kids, he would sometimes need a place to crash. And although I'm not sure if he ever lived at the Moloch house, he definitely hung out there. The Moloch house was a very welcoming place. Lee has kind of rural Arkansas roots, so he was very comfortable around black people. And I have to say that that's, you know, that's an issue because in Memphis at that time, most white people were not comfortable around black people. I mean, I have to remind you how segregated and how much hate there was in this city, the remnants of which continued today. Talking about segregation, I should point out another important venue to the music scene, the Overton Park Shell, which sat near where the different streets divided the racial makeup of Memphis. So the Overton Park Shell was built as an open air amphitheater as part of the Works Progress Administration, you know, the New Deal in the uh, 40s. And sometime in the, in the mid-1960s, Jim Dickinson realized, or early 1960s, I think 1963, Dickinson realized that as a public venue, it was available for rent. And in fact, the rent was about 50 bucks. So it was not, um, you know, 50 bucks was real money in 1963, but it was not impossible money. The Shell became one of the places that black and white artists could play together and was even the site of the Memphis Blues Festival, which celebrated musicians from many different backgrounds. But because of the ease of availability, it also meant other groups could just as easily reserve the space. By the time of the 60s, the whites, especially in Memphis, were aware that the music they loved had come from black people. I mean... Uh, it had already been a decade since Elvis Presley had begun to bring the blues mainstream, and that happened around the corner. You know, it wasn't like a, a kind of foreign idea or something that happened in a distant place. It was here. The, the, the people who believed in that, who shared Elvis's feelings, were thrilled about it. At the same time, city fathers were repulsed. And so the, the shell was for rent to anybody it was actually, I believe, a week before the Blues Festival that they'd rented it to the Klan. Um, I found an article where one of the one of the black employees said the law is, you know, we can go to the bathroom anywhere we want, but we know if we go in the white men's room, we'll be fired. Segregation was strong and firm and the way of the land in Memphis well into the 70s. I think it's important to understand what Busta was up against during this time. There were many in power in Memphis who were disgusted by the collaboration between black and white musicians. But thank God Busta found the right crowd. Busta's proximity to the rest of Moloch eventually led to him joining the band and playing bass on the band's follow-up 7-inch, Cocaine Katie, released in 1972. This is the very first piece of commercial recorded music Busta ever played on. And even though you won't see his name on the 7-inch itself, after talking to some of the members of Moloch for this project, I can confidently say that's Busta on bass. Plus the B-side, the terrorizing of Miss Nancy Jane. Both tracks are clearly electric blues, and very heavy at that. 
Busta's bass reflects this, being this simple and occasionally playful backing to the song. It's not overly present in the mix, and often it mimics the guitar. But as we'll see with many songs Busta plays on, it isn't about being flashy. It's about playing to the song. And even early on, you can hear that in the music. The terrorizing of Miss Nancy Jane is especially awesome. Listen to that line Busta plays as the guitars go crazy. Moloch broke up after the release of Cocaine Katie, but the band members still remained in close contact and even formed several other important Memphis groups, including the Electric Blue Watermelon, the Agitators, and Mudboy and the Neutrons. But for now, Busta is leaving the Memphis scene. I don't exactly know why. It could have been for any number of reasons. It could have been that Memphis was just too small a city for Busta. It could have been that Busta felt that he needed to experiment with other bands to grow as a musician. Or it could have been that he was a black man living in 70s Tennessee a place that still had public events for the KKK and segregated high schools. Whatever the reason, Busta decides to go where he feels he can play the music he wants to play, and he moves across the pond to London. There, Busta ends up in a British blues band called Sharks. Let's back up for a bit. First formed in 1972, Sharks was the band that felt destined for success. On bass was the legendary Andy Frazier. If you don't know the name, you definitely know the music. He was part of a band called Free, and they wrote a little song called All Right Now. was a key part of the British blues revival and core to the innovations in the genre that gave rise to progressive rock. He, he was a hit songwriter who had just written All Right Now, probably only a year or two previously. That voice is the other big British name that played in Sharks, guitarist Chris Bedding. I, um, I got contacted by Andy. He wanted to form a band because I was, I was committed to doing session studio work. That's how he, um, he found out about me. He, he, he heard a record I played on and sought me out. Chris was already a big name in the British music scene, having shown his guitar excellency in jazz fusion bands like Nucleus. As far as the, the guitar for Nucleus and some of the other uh, jazz musicians that he played with, he told me that he was using rock riffs that anybody who was cognizant of classic rock music would have recognized. But the jazz people didn't. So they were like, oh, wow, that's great. You know, then he'd be playing some Steve Cropper thing. And they'd be like, that's great. You have to put that in there. This is music historian and author Kimberly Bright, who wrote a fantastic book on Chris called Reluctant Guitar Hero. Well, let's see. I, I first became aware of Chris when I was probably in junior high. And I saw him in um, the Paul McCartney movie, Give My Regards to Broad Street. He was in that. And we were very blown away because we didn't know who he was. Your 
But that's all much later in the story. Right now, Chris is just coming off of that studio work with a number of jazz and rock musicians. He absolutely worshipped Andy and the way that he played. He was dying to work with Andy. He wanted to be in a band because I think he wanted to have more say in, in what he was playing, help write the songs. In addition to the power duo that was garnering most of the media attention around Sharks, was Marty Simon on drums. Marty was a musician from Canada who had gained some notoriety when he played with the Atlanta band Mylon and Holy Smoke while they were on tour opening up in arenas for bands like Jethro Tull and The Who. Although that group didn't end up working out, Marty did end up with some pretty impressive management personnel. So I go to, I go to London now with a knapsack and like five weeks, six weeks uh, more of the money. And when I get there, one of my managers, Gary Kerfers, calls me and he says, Marty, there is a guy, a bass player that just left free. His name is Andy Fraser. He wrote All Right Now, he wrote all this stuff, and he's left. So why don't you go out to his place and see if you and him can get together. Some Talking Heads fans might have perked up just then at the name Gary Kerfurst. Along with managing Marty and Andy Fraser, Gary would go on to manage Talking Heads, as well as other new wave acts like the B-52s and Blondie. Rounding out the band was Steve Snips Parson on vocals. Snips had been invited to join the band through Island Records after a talent scout saw him performing in a local band in Hall. He had previously played in such bands as Nothing Ever Happens, Flesh, and Chess Fever. One of the people that they auditioned was Robert Palmer. Then that would have been fun. But, you know, Snips was a good choice, I think. Sharks as a band was definitely popular both in the UK and the US. Alongside their impressive musicianship, the band also had many industry connections through all four of the band's members. They opened for Roxy Music in the UK, and later for Leslie West and Mountain in the US. Sharks' first album, appropriately titled First Water, has this awesome logo on the front cover. Designed by British artist Tony Wright, the logo has a great 70s feel to it, and you could easily see it tattooed on your uncle's arm. Well, if things had gone a little differently for Sharks. Because while the musicianship was definitely there, the band's dynamics weren't. One of the biggest challenges came from the idea of who would be the frontman of the group. When Snips joined, he was expecting that they would be doing his songs since he was the singer. That wasn't how Andy saw it. Andy, who helped form the band initially with Chris and Marty, felt as though being the most commercially successful member of the group would be deemed the frontman and also songwriter. However, Snips, who was recruited for the group specifically for his vocal abilities, alongside his excellent songwriting, thought that he would be the group's frontman and songwriter. Stories from the studio for First Water are almost always chaotic, and it's a small miracle an album ever ended up coming out. Before Chris joined the Sharks, he had long hair and his glasses, and he didn't necessarily dress like a hippie, but he dressed very, you know, early 70s casual. And then when the Sharks happened, he cut his hair short, and he was wearing these suits from Vivian Westwood, and he was looking really sharp. And this bothered Andy. And he did not want to be a glam band, at least not looking like a glam band. So he would dress more and more down. And so <laughs> Snip said that at one point, you know, Andy comes on stage basically wearing overalls, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> looking like a farmer. And <laughs> they're like, what? what? What's wrong with you? There was always an underlying stress in the band. Perhaps one of the most interesting points of contention between the band members was the Sharkmobile. That was my general ride at the time. This is again guitarist Chris Spedding, talking about his old Pontiac Le Mans. Um, we just thought, wouldn't it be cool if we put, uh, I don't know whose idea it was, somehow I don't think it was mine, like uh, 
fiberglass teeth on the front and a, and a fin on the top and, and, and pull wave, paint waves on the side of the car. That was his car anyway. That's what he already had because he loved a big American cars. So that was the kind of car he had anyway. So that just happened to be the car he had when Sharks was happening. So they decided that they were going to turn it into a you know promotional item and put the fin and the teeth on it. The car became more or less a drivable billboard for the band, being hard to miss in the small provincial towns of England. I personally love the thing. It's so goofy and fun, and in contrast with the hard blues music Sharks was making. One person who maybe was not as big a fan of Sharkmobile was Andy Frazier. Andy had started the band with the idea that it would be an exercise for his musical muscles, a project where he could be taken seriously. And this comical Sharkmobile wasn't what he was hoping for with the band. Unfortunately, I smashed it up after it was around for a couple of months and there's hardly any photographs of it. Luckily or unluckily, Andy wouldn't have to stand the side of the thing for long. While driving home from a gig in Northern England, Andy was in the front seat, I was in the back seat, Chris was driving. We came up to a roundabout. This is drummer Marty Simon again. He didn't see it, and he just went right through the roundabout and lost control. We went into a tree. I don't even think there were seatbelts in those days. Andy got hurt. He hurt his thumb. There were almost no injuries from the accident, except for Andy, who broke his thumb. That was really the straw that broke the camel's back, because shortly after, Andy left the crew. Without Andy, the band was down a bassist, as well as down one of their biggest talent draws. They immediately began to look for a replacement. We were at Island Studios. We were in the upstairs studio, and the Rolling Stones were in the downstairs studio. I think they were mixing goat's head soup. We see this guy creeping. It was Mick Jagger. And uh, he, has a, he has a way of, uh, if, if he wants to, he can take over the whole room. But if he also wants to, he can creep in and you never notice him. Because as soon as you realise it's Mick Jagger, everything changes. But he did suggest, what you guys need is a black American bass player. So that, that sort of comment stayed with us. Mick Jagger, yes, that Mick Jagger, recommended that the band look for a real black American bass player from Memphis. And you'll never guess what happened next. Then, as I said, Buster suddenly fell into our lap fully formed. He had his glitter jacket and, uh, yeah, and sort of satin pants and all that. And uh, Oh, yeah, he, he, he was just starting the, the glam rock thing where, you know, musicians could wear outrageous clothing. Now it should be said, Sharks had auditioned a few different bass players for the group before they landed on Busta. We, we did audition a bunch of guys, but it just didn't click until Buster walked in. And when you, when you play with somebody and you're speaking the exact same language without having to say anything, you know that that's, that's it. It's like the Beatles said the first time that Ringo sat down, they knew that the band was the Beatles. And I thought he can't replace Andy but he can provide something on the bass, energy, and, and something that we can build off of. Busta, a black American bass player from Memphis, who at this point is still looking for gigs in London, eventually finds his way in front of Sharks, auditions, and gets the part, alongside another new Shark recruit, Nick Judd, who would cover Andy's piano playing for Sharks tunes. I guess now is as good as time as any to bring up Busta's full stage name, the regrettable Buster Cherry Jones. I don't like saying it as much as you don't like hearing it. The name itself is explicitly sexual and uncomfortable, but nevertheless, Busta would continue to be referred to this in full well into the 80s. He gave this name to himself sometime after arriving in London, a young kid who was probably looking to shock as much as he was to entertain, regardless of how a name like that might alienate women. And while we can go back and forth about what's in a name, I think it's indicative of the way that Busta thought about women. 
although Busta was a decent and friendly guy, and at his core, I think a good person, he was a bit rough around the edges. The music scene he grew up with in Memphis, as well as the scene in 70s London, were definitely male-dominated, even though there were plenty of women involved in both. I wouldn't be surprised if some of this misogyny rubbed off on Busta. Getting back to the story, at this point, Busta saw himself as a rock star and dressed to play the part, with platform heels and wild-colored clothing. This combined with his daunting six-foot stature made it hard to miss Busta during performances. If anybody could fill Andy's big shoes, it was Busta, who could match not only the personality, but the musicianship as well. But this new energy also came with the same old squabbles in the studio. The band still had a tension between musicians, and when they went in for the recording for their next album, Jab It In Your Eye, named after a line from Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, they would rediscover their old feuds. Like the first record, a lot of it had to do with misunderstandings and creative differences. Busta was definitely a fish out of water in London, not only as an American living abroad, but also as a black man in a predominantly white genre. At this point in popular rock music, there were almost no black faces. Although the genre had its roots in Southern United States black folk music, this new genre of rock was almost exclusively commercially successful for white artists. Nevertheless, Busta still pursued rock music actively and tried his best to make a name for himself in the genre. Although it would be better to say that all members of Sharks contributed in some way to every song on Jab It In Your Eye, it's important to note that Busta's first ever writing credit, and in fact his first official music credit ever, appears as a writer for the song Baby Shine A Light. Busta would also do a few side gigs for various artists during this time. Sharks' already existing connections through the music industry in the UK led to Busta performing on the song A Cat Like You on the Chris Jagger album The Adventures of Valentine Vox, The Ventriloquist. But probably a more notable collaboration at this time would be Busta's work alongside a name familiar to a lot of Talking Heads fans, Brian Eno. At this point, Sharks had previously opened for Roxy Music when it still included Eno in its lineup. So, around September of 1973, when Eno was ready to start recording his first solo album, called Here Come the Warm Jets, he would call in some Sharks musicians for studio work. All of the members of Sharks, except Snips, played on at least a few songs on the record. You can hear Busta's bass playing on the songs The Paw Paw Negro Blowtorch, Dead Finks Don't Talk, On Some Faraway Beach, and Cindy Tells Me. Although this album wouldn't be Busta's ticket to success, that connection to Eno is very important and would lead to future collaborations with other Talking Heads members down the line. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Right now, Sharks has just released a new album and is setting out on tour through the US. The record sells better in the States and even spawns a single for the track, Kung Fu. Kung Fu. Kung Fu. 
drew some connections with Basic's Felix Popolardi. Sharks secured a spot opening for the band Mountain in the U.S. There are a few bumps along the way, though. Well, as far as I remember the story, when they when the Sharks were touring in the South, it, everything was going really well at, at, the, at the gigs and everything, and they were being really well-received, but they had a racist bus driver calling Bustet every epithet you can think of and the other guys i think were completely shocked at that level of just overt racism because they'd probably never seen it before like that in the deep south even when he was part of the talent busta couldn't catch a break because of his race nevertheless he kept going and thank god he did wearing me out now keeping it in i still let it all Following the U.S. tour, Sharks would return to the U.K. much in the same way they had left. Dysfunctional. Amidst the bickering, the band would begin to work on a third album, possibly called Musical Breakout, but it would never come to fruition. Instead, disagreements within the band led first to Nick Judd being fired, followed shortly thereafter by Marty Simon. Next, Busta would lead the band, and far more dramatically than the others. First, secretly stealing and pawning one of Chris's guitars in order to pay for the plane ticket. And not only that, he didn't tell anyone he was quitting the band, leaving the rest of them in the lurch for future concert dates. Chris and Snips would continue to try and lead Sharks, but following a handful of gigs and recording sessions, the band would come to an unceremonious end. This isn't the end for Busta. Rather, it's really just another beginning, as Busta now comes back to the States, determined to still make it as a musician. He calls up some old friends, brothers Ralph and Donald Kinsey. Busta had met Ralph and Donald during his time with Albert King back in Memphis. Originally part of the family band The Kinsey Report, Ralph and Donald made it into King's band with the help of their father, band leader and Gary, Indiana music legend Big Daddy Kinsey. Ralph played drums while Donald played guitar. Up to this point, Donald had been serving as band leader for King's band, but he felt as though it was time to expand into a new musical project that would allow him to become a full musician in his own right. Ralph had also just left the Air Force, and with Busta now also looking for work, the power trio White Lightning was formed. After recording a demo onto a cassette, the three went to New York in hopes of securing a record deal. The band ends up working with Island Records, which was one of the largest independent music labels in history. This big name get was probably due to a few different reasons. The Kinsey brothers both had connections in the industry through their father, and Busta also had specific Island connections, having worked with Gary Kerfers, who was also manager to a number of Island Record artists before he worked with Sharks. All that being said, the band could have 100% gotten the deal on talent alone. I mean, just listen to the album. fantastic surrealist album cover done by Matty Clarman, who had also done the cover for Miles Davis's Bitches Brew, the album boasted an aggressive blues rock and metal sound. At this point, all of the band members had gotten their feet wet in other groups, but now they had their own album to show their own sounds. The band was playing some very heavy music during the mid-70s, and all three band members were black, something unheard of for the genre at the time. 
In fact, in a later interview Donald gave to the Chicago Tribune in 1989, he talked about how White Lightning was opening for bands like Aerosmith and Black Oak, Arkansas. It was all about energy. We had a stack of amps and we just played all out. Man, we were a ball of fire. Our picture wasn't on the album cover, so you should have seen the looks on people's faces when these three black dudes would walk on stage at a heavy metal concert. Once we were out there though, the audience got into it. Like Sharks, internal problems within White Lightning would lead to the band's breakup. Problems with management and artistic differences led to a bit of an unceremonious end. But don't worry about the Kinsey brothers. They both were able to pursue successful careers following this. In fact, some listeners might have already known the name Donald Kinsey from his work with the little-known reggae group Bob Marley and the Wailers. Yep, that's Donald on guitar. But unfortunately for Busta, he found himself in the same situation again. He was at this point an incredibly skilled bassist with a good ear for music and the presence and stamina to tour the world. But sadly, he didn't have a band to tour with. Don't worry, Busta finds another big name to play with because like with White Lightning, Busta keeps all of his old musical friends close when he can. And his Canadian drummer friend Marty Simon was about to lead Busta into a whole new era for his career. But you'll have to wait till next episode for all of that. Slippery People Podcast was made by me, Calvin Crunkleton, but you can call me Slippery Dude. The voices you heard in this podcast besides mine were the legendary Kimberly Bright, Robert Gordon, Marty Simon, and Chris Spedding. Special thanks for this episode includes B-P-L-C-J-G-C-U-T-M-D-K-C-J-J-C-K-B-C- M-L-E-W-T-P-D-S-K-F-and-R-B. Slippery People Podcast features music from the band TMM, specifically the songs Pop-Tart Fire and Wooden Funk. You can find them on all your favorite platforms. If you'd like to learn more about Busta or this podcast, feel free to visit me at slipperypeoplepod.com. There you can find episode transcripts and bibliographies, as well as a playlist of music used. If you know more information about Busta and would like to send it my way, or just feel like reaching out, please send me an email at slipperypeoplepod at gmail.com. That's S-L-I-P-P-E-R-Y-P-E-O-P-L-E-P-O-D at gmail.com. Thanks. You got a nice hardwood surface. Maple. Girl, you're thicker than a 4x4. What?